Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This episode of the Honest Field Guide podcast featuring Bethany Baines, founder of Breadwinning Women, is sponsored by CPAS Foundation. CPAS Foundation is creating pathways and access for student success. CPAS aims to increase underrepresented Illinois students in major healthcare and related STEM professions by providing the strongest educational foundation and access to resources. You can find out more about CPAS Foundation at cpasfoundation.org. Welcome to the Honest Field Guide podcast, a weekly show dedicated to winning in entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Ginger Birkenbuehl. I'm the CEO of Burke Creative, a leadership, brand strategy, and visual identity agency dedicated to helping scale brands and assist with their adaptability with the market. On my show, you get to eavesdrop in on intimate conversation with business leaders and inspired entrepreneurs designed to give you tips and strategies so your own business can thrive. Subscribe and join me each week for laughter, inspiration, and honest stories. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to my show, The Honest Field Guide Podcast. I am Ginger Burke and Buell. I am the founder and host and also CEO of branding and communication strategy firm, Burke Creative. So first of all, let me just say, as I always say, you could be anywhere in the world online, but you're choosing to listen in and listen to my show and hopefully subscribe to my show. So thank you, thank you, thank you so much for listening. Please subscribe to my show if you aren't already on Apple Podcasts, or you can listen right from your browser on Google Podcasts by searching The Honest Field Guide. Share my podcast with your friends. The more people that hear my show, the better for my guests. And my only ask, if you could please leave a review of my show on Apple Podcasts, because I really want Apple to pay attention to me. Could they please give me some love? And the only reason they're going to do that is if you leave a review for me. So thank you so much. Okay, so on with the show, the Honest Field Guide podcast. So I want to ask an overarching question right now to everyone that's listening. When you think of the word breadwinner, when you say that word or when you hear it, What comes to your mind when you think of the breadwinner of the family? What are you thinking about? What's your visual? What does the breadwinner look like? How does the breadwinner act? What do they do? How do they move through the world? What is sort of your relationship with the breadwinner? I want you to kind of think about these things because today we're talking to Bethany Baines about this topic. She is the founder of the platform Breadwinning Women. Bethany began her career in the photo industry before joining Google in 2004. Throughout her 17-year career at Google, she has spent 12-hour days reviewing ads. She sold the first campaigns on YouTube, created, launched, and sometimes sunsetted products. She negotiated billions of dollars in first-of-their-kind deals and oversaw data and analytics for a multi-million, billion-dollar business. She is a tireless women's advocate and a recognized leader on the topic of breadwinning women. She founded the Breadwinning Women's Community at Google, which grew to over 3,000 women globally in two years and will launch something similar 
at her new organization. Bethany, welcome, welcome, welcome to the Honest Field Guide podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I loved that introduction of just the imagination session of, you know, what does this look like? Like when you imagine an engineer, do you think a train engineer? And I just am so curious if I could pop into your listeners' heads and visualize what they visualized. It's a real thing. I mean, you know, when we're young, we grow up with so many narratives. I mean, we have these images we see and movies we watch and we listen to conversations and we watch the way people move through the world to show us what they believe and what they think, whether they believe it or not. We're just watching actions. And so when you think of a a loaded term like breadwinning, you know, I know what I imagine a breadwinner is based on what I grew up looking at or expecting. And that's actually something I want to talk about a little bit. I want to understand the beginning of you, because I imagine with this beautiful platform you launched and just everyone I need to level set. I know about breadwinning women because I do work with Google. And as a Google digital coach, I learn about a lot of the movements and opportunities and, you know, what Google's working on and all the great tools and things that they have. And breadwinning women is something that I discovered through conversations with other people at Google. And I jumped down the rabbit hole of breadwinning women at Google. And I was like, oh my gosh, I found my people. I have found (laughs) my people of amazing women. But before we really talk about the platform, I want to understand a little bit about where you came from. What kind of relationship did you have with money in your earliest memory? I had a very privileged upbringing. We were upper middle class. I had great schooling. I wanted for nothing. My parents divorced when I was younger. My mom was a single mom and she always worked, always. And so I was always very aware of the empowerment of having your own money, the importance of being able to have control and independence in your life because you had your own money. I will say I constantly heard and saw my mom worrying about money. So that was something that was really important and a driving factor for me was to hopefully live my life in a way that I didn't have that same level of worries. You know, I will say As we talk about a history, like, you know, I don't have an MBA, despite my history and length of success in tech and business, like, I didn't go to a top tier school, I didn't anticipate being a businesswoman. And in many ways, it was just very serendipitous that I ended up where I ended up and was driven in the way that I was. But I always worked. I always worked. I mean, I think my first job babysitting gig at 11 years old, you know, it's just I was always eager to jump in and to have control and have my own money. So I think if I could capture my relationship with money in a single term, it would be control. I want to feel in control. I want to feel like I have control. I want to feel like it's not out of control, you know, and there's been ups and downs along that road, but that's always been a really important tenant for me. Did your mom talk to you about money or did you just watch her move through the world and you're just like, oh my God, everything is just a battle with money. I mean, did did you even have an awareness of what was happening with money? Look, I'll be totally honest. Like, I actually don't know if my mom struggled with money. I know she felt like she struggled with money and that's enough. Like in terms of the stress and the angst that that can produce in one's life, I said, we did not struggle with food on the tail. We did not struggle with clothes. We did not struggle with those things. But there was a constant undercurrent of financial worry that to see the stress that that played for her was enough for me to have that takeaway. You know, I also was raised by a single mother who I saw handle money badly, 
for the most part, because she didn't have a lot of it. So what she did have was really, you know, a struggle for her and right, a struggle for all of us. But, you know, it's just you mentioned control. And I think that when you think about whether or not your mom had money or not, you're not sure, but you know that it was ever present and she was worried about it. And that makes me think about the fact that women don't have control of their money. Were you young enough to understand those concepts? Because when I saw my mother, for example, that one year that we had our water cut off because she didn't have enough money to pay the water bill, even though she was a public school teacher, you know, she had a regular job. I just knew that not having money could result in the worst things that could happen, which is no water, which means we had to go take a shower at the YMCA, for example. But you know, when you think about what's happening in society, is the control piece for you? Did you recognize it when you were little because we didn't have control? I mean, women didn't have their own money and all the images we see are, are women not having money, not having education, being taken care of by somebody else. You know, you must have picked up on something because it led you on a different path as you became an adult. But I think this early imagery is important so that it helps other women understand that you're not alone, but also there is something happening that's making us like this. I come from a long line of female breadwinners. So my grandmother and my grandfather divorced, I think back in the 50s, which was unheard of, particularly for a Roman Catholic family. So my grandmother, she ran their company. She kept control of the company. She was completely self-made and self-sufficient, but she was very much the head of the household and she kept her investments and her her wealth, frankly. And so I grew up in the house with my grandmother. And then, you know, when my mom and my dad split up, then I was with my mom. So I always had that kind of work ethic role model and that kind of, you know, drive to that independence or just the concept, frankly, that you don't know what's going to happen. So whether it's death, whether it's separation, whether, you know, you become a single parent, like, life happens and you have to be prepared to be able to take care of yourself and your family on your own. So I think that message was always pretty clear to me. So I grew up with the message, you must always have money in your pocket for mad money because you never know what's going to happen. Similar to what your mom told you or your family or whatever you consumed in that way. You've always got to have a way to get home. And when I say that, I mean, you must not rely on any man to get you home. You have to get yourself home, no matter where you are. Whatever's happening, you have to know how to get back home. And that was a double message of making sure that I have my own money, but also being careful and be scared (laughs) because, you know, you're a young woman and you're at risk and you could get hurt unless you know how to get home. And the other piece, you know, when I think about my own narratives growing up, my mother used to tell me a lot, you have to make sure everything's in your own name, your house, your credit cards your bills, everything has to be in your name. Don't ever let anybody else put anything in their name and you're following along with them. Because many women, you know, go into marriages and these are, you know, women that marry men specifically where the man is bringing home the bacon, he's the breadwinner. And the woman doesn't have accounts and nothing is in her name. And then sometimes if there is a divorce, the woman has no information and no ability or means to have some financial independence of her own. And if she has children, her children are at risk as well. Sometimes a woman will lose her entire social network as well when the husband is gone. And this is a divorce versus a death. I mean, I'm really thinking of a divorce. Yeah, well, there's different, right? There's death where all of a sudden you're like, oh my God, where is everything? Right. And then how about this flip side too? How about the woman who is the breadwinner who doesn't keep an eye or play a role in the managing of their finances? 
and finds out all of a sudden that there's some surprises lurking that they weren't aware of. Moving forward to your sort of early work life, you were a photographer for Ralph Lauren. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I I worked in the photo department. Right. You worked in the photo department and you moved around to some stock photo companies. One of my favorites, by the way, Photonica, which at the time, you know, I worked in corporate when I was using Photonica back at Anderson. And I remember when Photonica first came out, they were the first stock photography place that had beautiful, glorious, custom like just gorgeous images that were stock photos in it. And they had these beautiful catalogs. Like, where's this photography come into your life? Are you a creative? I mean, what's going on here? So my second year in college, I decided to do a study abroad program. And I just went to the office and I chose the first name on the list. I had no idea where I wanted to go. And it was Alicante, Spain. It was, you know, letter A. So it was the first one on the list. And I was like, okay, I'll go there. I ended up, it was like a six-month study abroad program. And as the six months ended, I was like, I don't want to go back. And so I ended up getting my own apartment in this little town, Alicante. And then I had so much kind of freedom to just be on my own in this foreign country and learn this language and learn the people and the culture. And I really got into photography. A friend of mine had given me a camera and I just started taking pictures. And this was you know, mid 90s. So everything was on actual film and you had to go and print up your prints. And it was the first time I felt like I had a really creative outlet, which, you know, I'm not a typically creative person. I'm not a musician. I'm not an artist. And so that to me was like a really exciting medium and kind of an exciting part of myself that I didn't know. And then I ended up coming back to finish my degree and I spent a ton of time in the photo lab at school. And that was just, it was like a time warp. I would go in there and if you've ever been in a dark room and you've got the chemicals and the light. Many times, many times. I went to art school, so. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Yeah. I honestly would just go in there and have no idea how long I had been in there for. And it was like a sanctuary. I loved it, loved it, loved it. And then a friend of mine who's still a dear friend, we still live a block away from each other in Brooklyn. She had a room open up in her apartment and I moved down and very quickly learned how expensive New York City is and that I needed a job. So my first job was with a temp agency through Polo Ralph Lauren. And I was doing like inventory. I was literally sitting in a conference room counting like pillows and lampshades. And then they had an opening in their photo department. And it really was, it was a legit lab. This was before anything went digital. And so I was more the front office. I was definitely still more on the business side, but I got to sit with and be with all the photographers while they were doing all the prints and the creatives, which was just really, it was really special. Were there other women in that area at the time or were you the only one? Okay. No, no. So in fact, our main boss, this woman, Sybil Powers, she was the main head of the department and it was a small team, maybe 15 of us. It was pretty half and half. And I was the lowest rung on the totem pole. You know, I was literally just doing archive stickers and stuff, but it was such a great experience. It sounds amazing. And then you started working for this iconic company called Photonica. And then from there, though, you left that groundbreaking stock photo company to go work at a little startup named Google. I did. I did. So I was working for this awesome art house. They were open to scanning and digitizing all of their photography, which was kind of where the industry was going. What they didn't do was kind of look at how to make e-commerce transactions. And so I felt like technology was coming. There was an adaptation concern and they just weren't quite getting it. So when I looked at 
you know, forward-thinking technology companies. Google was pretty nascent at the time that I applied. I think it was 2003. I'm pretty sure I faxed my resume. It was like, oh, okay, these people get it. Because I don't know where this is going, but these people are going to be a part of it. And then I read an article that they gave away free ice cream on Fridays. And I was like, this company sounds amazing. So I faxed in my resume and I got a call. And as I say, the rest is history. I feel like Google... I don't know if it's like that now, if it's like this today, but it seems like they have sort of a culture of hiring people with diverse creative backgrounds, not necessarily diversity, but people that are not necessarily coming from traditional spaces, at least in terms of their thinking and just listening to you, you know, talk about your relationship with money and your desire to work and your work ethic and just sort of your curiosity that drove you through all aspects of your life. Of course, you would end up at a company like Google. It makes complete sense to me. So working at Google, though, I just imagine that there's no entrepreneurial space in there. It doesn't seem like there is. But then again, when you were there, you created something amazing. But I'm just wondering, how long did it take before you created Breadwinning Women at Google? I mean, what did you see in the company where you were thinking, I've got to do something? Like, what was the magical thing happening? And I'm going to just let you know why I'm thinking about this. There's a lot of women that work inside of companies and they are not allowed to think or create. They really have to just do. There's no space for them to really be themselves or to invent something. I mean, you definitely, you know, have to be careful when you invent things with companies. Oftentimes we're in a box and, you know, we do what we're told and we keep going on with what we're going on with. But that's not really how you've ever led your life. And that's definitely not how you led your life at Google. So, you know, where did this thing come from in there? I was talking with a lot of women that as we spoke to one another, realized we were all breadwinners, realized we weren't talking about it and realized that we had been shamed into silence. And that was the watershed moment for me where I was like, we are not sharing our stories. We're not learning from one another. We're not leaning on one another. We're not empowering each other. This is the problem. We've been made to feel that this is shameful, that this is unfeminine, that this is somehow not natural, and that we should be quiet so as, one, not to appear unladylike, two, not to disclose information that's very private, very personal, it's money, yes, and three, to not emasculate our male partners if we were in male partnerships. So these are the messages we were getting, and that's why the power of sharing these stories, the power of understanding anecdotes and scenarios outside of our own is so important to being a breadwinning woman and to recognizing and identifying as a breadwinning woman and seeking partnerships that are going to be supportive of a breadwinning woman. You know, those types of dynamics are really critical. But when you asked about, you know, I had been at Google for many, many years before I started this, it was mostly that I don't think I thought of myself as a breadwinner or thought about my role in this way in a conscious way until I literally became the breadwinner for my family and realized the shift in dynamics, not only within my relationship, but in terms of, you know, how I was perceived across friends and family, how I was perceived at schools, you know, my role in the workplace, all of these things really started to come together as a much clearer vision of why this is a huge challenge and a huge opportunity. And I think it took me a while to get to that place that I felt proud, 
that I felt I understood that some of the dynamics that I felt open to discussing them. And that was when I was like, Oh my God, I've just been on this whole freaking journey and felt so alone. If I do this, I can get women from where they're at to where I'm at in much less time. And that was my whole goal is one, I'm going to make this much more positive because so much of the narrative surrounding this dynamic was very negative. And I was like, I don't want that for my life. And I don't want anyone going through the isolation, the loneliness, the insecurity that I did when there's so many of us out here. And so it was less about innovating within the walls of a company like Google and more about my own journey when I really felt like I had something that I recognized as a need. Like after my second maternity leave, my husband got laid off and we decided he wouldn't go back to work. And we didn't even know how to say that. Is he retiring? Is he unemployed? Is he a stay-at-home dad? Is he primary caregiver? Like we didn't even know what to call him. And so it was those moments where I was just like, oh my God, I feel like an alien right now. So it really became wanting to create that space. And then I realized in some pointed conversations that there were probably a lot more women like me. Yeah. I mean, there is a lot around that. I mean, you know, for me, it's it's a little bit different as a black woman. I'm a woman first and then I'm a black woman. And there are cultural things around black women and their money and making money and things like that. And with their relationships with men, you know, I've always been the one to make the money and it's never been an issue for me to make more money or to have more money or to be the money maker. Like I haven't really had that challenge, but when my husband and I decided that he was going to stay home and take care of the children because my workload had significantly increased and we have three children and I was thinking, I am really actually not going to be able to do this. Like I cannot do all of this and run a company at the same time. And we made a decision for him to stay home for a while, which he did. And that was really tough. People thought he was insane. They thought I was insane. They're like, what are you doing? What is happening? It was a thing. And there's a couple of very fiscally responsible women that I know that said, Ginger, do you understand the massive responsibility of having three children and not having a second income? And I was like, yeah, I mean, we can make this work. <laughs> it's going to be fine. It wasn't really anything that really scared me until my husband had a health crisis. And then it suddenly became a thing like, oh, shoot. Okay, gosh, I'm holding down every single fort that can possibly be held down. And it was a real scary thing. And when that happened, I don't feel like there was enough support around me to make it work. I mean, I said, wow, this really is a lot to be the breadwinner. This is way more than I actually thought it was. You know, I thought about my responsibility, you know, for the family and my husband at the same time. But it's interesting. I get into arguments with my oldest son about who should pay for dinner when you go on a date. And, you know, I wonder, you know, for you, how would you have a conversation like that? Because he sees his mom and his dad and my husband does work now. I mean, we're both, you know, we're a two income family. You know, I am the bread giver of the family as one of my advisors likes to say, don't ever call yourself a breadwinner, call yourself a bread giver. But, you know, my three sons have grown up seeing a lot of, you know, independence with me. And one of my oldest sons argues, I will never pay for women at dinner. She will always pay for me. <laughs> I'm just like, okay, what is that supposed to mean? Like, you're never going to pay for her dinner or buy her a drink or pay for her yeah. movie. You're always going to be like the guy that's sitting there. And like, I didn't teach you to be that way. Like, what's going on here? There's so much around this nuclear family message. And it, it does cause some confusion 
especially with today's young people, because they're getting all kinds of messages from the media, you know, related to things that are happening to women in the United States. You know, I think there's something about taking care of people. So like paying for dinner or opening the door, like it's not really a gender thing. You know, you're just taking care of people. You're offering to others. You're giving to others. I feel like when I think about your history, you know, you've been very involved in women's movements and political speech. You are pro-choice. You're breadwinning woman. You know, you have a husband, you have children, and, you know, you have a really positive relationship with money with a lot of information and value add that you share with other people. You know, I feel like you created this movement with breadwinning women, I think, that should scale and it should be a conversation that takes place in all corporations, frankly, across America where women are working. How do you envision taking what you've created and bringing it to more people? How do you imagine this? Because my mantra my whole life has been if women can be aware of their thoughts around money, if they can be aware and understand the narratives that we've been given that are false and and overcome these inner voices that are stopping them from being successful and really start figuring out how can I become financially independent? Because when I become financially independent, I can help other women become financially independent. And then that will literally change the world. Yeah. I don't know how I bring this further. I have a lot of ideas. One of the ideas, I did start a podcast called Working Wife, Happy Life. And it was basically because we were having all these amazing conversations with the Google community. However, if you weren't an employee at Google, you couldn't participate in those. So that felt like a very obvious way to start to bring some of the incredible people that I had met through my network and their messages and their frameworks to bear. So there was that initiative. I do a lot of speaking engagements across different companies. So whether it has to do with women's programming or even leadership programming, that's a big thing that I talk about is not only the decisions that leaderships make. So most people in power happen to be white men. And if they don't allocate their opportunities and their projects in a fair and equal way, women and other underrepresented communities will not have an opportunity to showcase their skills, will not have the opportunities to get promoted, will not have the opportunities to make more money. So it's like it really starts at the top, but also the bias busting that assuming that the woman with three children at home is any less committed to her career or her trajectory than the man with three children at home. Chances are she's just as financially responsible for her household and those three kids as the man is, but he's probably going to get more consideration when it comes to compensation planning and those types of things. So I try to have that conversation a lot with as many male leaders as I can. And I would love to figure out a way to scale this, but I also have to recognize like I'm one person. And so how do I grow and scale this movement in a way that is as impactful as it can be? And fortunately, I have networks and relationships that pull me into other conversations. I did a talk with a couple financial institutions and other places, but also to, you know, bring this work to the organizations that I'm a part of and to make sure that women realize, oh, there are people talking about this. There is language we can use, whether it's breadwinner or bread giver, whatever feels right to you just to understand it. You know, we're in male dominated spaces. And I love that you said that you are talking to corporations about what they need to do to create change. I mean, these things have to be funded. You know, these leaders have to fund the movements. They can't just talk about them. They actually have to put dollars behind them. But I'm also curious for women like you, again, that are in these corporate workspaces, what signals should they see or be looking for 
to give themselves the permission that you took with Google? Like, what do they need to see that they can say, I'm going to build this thing within the company? Because like I said, a lot of women that are working inside of companies, they're trying to figure out how to keep going because this pandemic has wreaked havoc on our personal lives, right? So what are the signals they need to look for? Women can and maybe should look for an honest sponsor on these efforts and not somebody who is checking a box of like, oh, DEI is important and we want to retain women and we want to support working moms, but somebody who's really doing the work and really has a meaningful engagement instead of just checking a list off, you know, their quarterly goals or something. Because I think when you have a supportive ear to one, not only help guide you, but also to praise your work to your leadership that I will tell you, this is the biggest problem with this type of work. It's not recognized. It is not recognized as scope. It is not recognized as impact. It is recognized by the people within the community. But again, from the leadership and the people that are making the decisions, it is 100% volunteer. That's the labor that we take on. And in some ways it is thankless work other than knowing how much you are really delivering to the people of your community. If you're getting in this for recognition, it was a long, long, hard road and probably the wrong line of work. So I will say if you are driven by wanting to create something more meaningful for you and for others in their day-to-day within an organization, and you feel like you maybe even have a sponsor to help you to amplify that impact, that would be amazing. But don't get in it thinking you're going to get a lot of recognition. And then basically for women that are inside and that are working and maybe are not about to work or they're about to leave or they're, you know, maybe they don't want to go back or they don't want to apply for jobs. I mean, do you think that having something like this, this philosophy, this mindset, is it an HR move? I mean, is this what women need to say yes to jobs or to want to work at companies? Because we're leaving companies. We're dropping out. We're not coming back into the workspace. I mean, I almost feel like if women recognized a breadwinning woman at every single company, I'm talking about the corporate space. I'm really talking about spaces where corporate women are living, where they have an opportunity for really great income generation, income opportunities, things like that. But don't you think that this is a recruiting possibility? I mean, I don't know. This is not an ERG. No, <laughs> you know I what know. I mean? This is like, yeah. this is a much bigger play than an employee resource group. Yeah. I mean, and that's what I think is that it's one of those things that needs to be recognized at a much broader societal level that there is almost half of our nation's population in terms of households are financially led by women. Yeah. Like it's not a small little thing. No. And so when we think about more women in leadership, when we think about more advancement, when we think about equal pay, like these things have real impacts. It impacts the type of education. It impacts the neighborhoods you can live in. It impacts the vacations you can take, the cultural explorations, the healthcare you can afford. All of these things are impacted based on this dynamic. So I do think it's much larger. I think there's a lot of movements that are going on to help support women and wellness in the workplace. I think the problem is we have so many undercurrents that are really undercutting those efforts from a more systemic level. 
So, I mean, I don't have the silver bullet answer for this by any means. None of us do. I mean, that's why we're having this conversation. We're trying to come up with solutions to figure out what kind of environments need to be created for women to want to work there and want to stay there and feel proud at the potential to become, or they already are, a brandy-booting women. These are complicated issues. And I'm just really grateful that you have started this what I like to call a movement. I know when I first jumped on, I was like, oh my gosh, where have you been my whole life? And, <laughs> you know, the women that are part of the breadwinning women community and even the concept alone encourages me to keep learning. And it gives me the confidence to ask questions without fear of getting attacked. You know what I mean? It's just the safe space with women that are having joys and triumphs and failures and absolute fear. And mm-hmm. it's just beautiful to kind of be in a community that you can hear these stories and see things and learn and respond or not respond. And I just wish that other companies would sort of deploy this type of design thinking into their organizations like you have. It was a real gift, I believe, what you created for Google. And I hope that you benefited in many, many ways from creating this gift. So I want to actually ask you some really dumb questions now. (laughs) I feel like we talked earlier about dumb questions and I'm going to ask you some dumb questions and you're going to be like, why are you asking me this? Because I want to know. So we're in a pandemic and my favorite cereal in the pandemic is a sugared cereal. And I really want to ask you that question. Do you even have a favorite cereal? Are you a cereal person or not? I'm not a cereal person. Why why isn't everyone a cereal person? I don't understand. Like I grew up eating Lucky Charms. Yeah. So there's, (laughs) those are currently in my house because my kids are cereal people. So Um, a kid at heart, I guess. I know I'm not a cereal person, but I'm like a true omnivore. And I have to say, you would be really hard pressed to find any sort of food on the sugar or salt spectrum that I would not eat. Oh, I love that. I love that. Well, I am definitely not that person. I'm a picky eater. My poor husband, he's like, why did I marry someone like you? I mean, I don't understand. Like you don't eat, you don't eat mussels and scallops. I'm like, no, I don't. So, okay. I know I don't. So do you have a favorite financial book, financial literacy book or financial money type book that you could tell me about? Well, it's very on point. There's two books that I love just because I felt like they spoke to me directly. One was called Think Like a Breadwinner. And and the other, it's not a money book, but it's the book called The Myth of the Nice Girl. And it really, I think it speaks to this message that a lot of women at work get where it's like, oh, you know, in order to be successful, you have to be cutthroat. And we have to, you know, it's like, how do we twist and bend ourselves into these forms that don't feel comfortable to us or, you know, kind of this, these ways that we have to be either overly nice versus being impactful. And I always kind of love that dynamic of being able to be full of heart, but also be taken seriously. You know, it's like, just do not mess with me, but I'm also not an unreasonable person. And I'm going to bring both of those things to this career. So those are two of my favorite, just kind of framing books that I think help professional women. I love that. And then last question is, what is the favorite part of your day? Like, what is the time that you always look forward to the most? I'm a morning person, not like super early, but I just love the quiet in my house when I wake up and just like the coffee smell and the sun is coming in. And I just love that feeling. How long does it last? Oh, it's like, I mean, maybe 20 minutes. That's good. 20 minutes is good. It's not like I'm meditating. I'm probably but I mean, that's a long time. But it's just like minutes? it's those, that time that you feel like everything's in its right place before yeah. the day is full into shit. So. Exactly. 
No, I totally, I totally feel that. Well, listen, this has been a really powerful and useful conversation, and I want more women to have these conversations. I really, really, really want women to stop being afraid of talking about money, and I want women to listen to their narratives and unpack them and and tell themselves, I didn't realize that my whole life I was looking for Prince Charming, or I didn't realize my whole life that I've actually been the breadwinner. Like, I want women to start just being more self-aware, like look in the mirror and say, this is actually happening. I don't want them to gaslight themselves anymore with this. So I want everyone in the universe, please (laughs) follow Bethany Baines. She is amazing. She's really created some innovative, amazing ideas around what women can do to be successful. And she's taking it to other companies and maybe one day we can figure out a way to help her scale this. So I want to thank you again for coming on to talk to me, Bethany. It's such an honor and a pleasure. Thank you so much for the work that you're doing and for giving me this time. It's so wonderful. And it's, it's honestly been such a rich conversation. No pun intended. So thank you. <laughs> pun intended are fine. That's totally fine. So I am Ginger. And I am Bethany. And we will talk to you next time. Thanks for coming on. Original music is written by and provided courtesy of Utah Carol. Follow Honest Field Guide on Instagram and Twitter. The opinions expressed on the Honest Field Guide are opinions only. Please do your own research.